My name is Ghost Guy Daniel, and for this week's strange news, I dive into what I believe is a skeptic's view of the Amityville Horror. Now, I'm not 100% sure, as you know, with the strange news segment, I don't reread these articles in advance. And I have a really cool one for you this week. Now, this isn't current, but it doesn't need to be, because it is discussing a subject that has been popular for decades, many, 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 many years. This dark history that spiraled out and became one of the most popular ghost stories and experiences in the history of ghosts. And of course, I am talking about the Amityville House, located in Long Island, New York. Now, this is legendary. And if you haven't heard of it, I am absolutely shocked. You know what? I can almost guarantee. I'm going to say 100% that everybody listening to my voice right now, you've heard of the Amityville Horror. I mean, there was movies, there was the main book, uh, story after story of family being affected. And uh, unfortunately, it hasn't heard too many with updated ghost stories. And that's sometimes a sign that a place isn't haunted and that it was just, you know, imagination or the seeking of money to, you know, take advantage of a piece of dark history. And I'm assuming that's what this article is going to cover and going to talk about. But I don't believe that to be true because there is another angle on that. And that's the fact that the current owners don't want visitors. And it's one of the reasons why I refuse to tell stories about residential homes in places like Niagara-on-the-Lake. Because the fear is that visitors are going to come out. And if visitors come out, it could disturb the peace of the people living inside the house. So that's very possible that the Amityville house doesn't have any updated stories because of that. So I don't think this is going to be in a believer's point of view. And just note that I don't only cover believer stuff. I, uh, you know, want to hear many sides of the story because I do think scientifically when it comes to ghost stories in general. And I and I try to apply a bit of a filter, you know, certain very over-the-top stories. And I will say that Amityville does have many of those over-the-top stories. I've covered this, I believe there's an article on the Ghost Walks website. I'm not sure if I talked about it in the podcast, maybe a future episode. So I have an article for you here. It's a doozy. To warn you, it's from a very interesting looking paper. I've never read it before. It is called, and I want to make sure I pronounce this correctly, uh, El Pais. El Pais. El Pais. It it says it's the world leading Spanish language newspaper. This is my first experience with it. And the article was written by uh, Jamie Lorite. I probably pronounced that. Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> it's like, brutalize your name. But the last name is Jamie, L-O-R-I-T-E. And the article is titled, if you want to look it up, which I will link to it in the description, The Brutal Truth About Amityville. It wasn't ghosts, but something worse. 
It is 3.15 a.m. on November 13, 1974. A 23-year-old man, Ronald DeFeo Jr., more commonly known as Butch, wakes up, rifle in hand, executes his entire family, his parents, two sisters, and two brothers. All died face down in bed, as if none have been awoken by the sound of gunfire and none of them had been drugged. It was as if his supernatural fourths had somehow silenced the weapon and kept the six victims in a trance until their fate was sealed. This is how most of the more than 30 horror movies inspired by the patricide in the Long Island neighborhood of Amityville in New York starts. From the original and most famous of them all, the Amityville Horror from 1979. To then go on and tell the story of how another family who moved into the house later experienced paranormal phenomenon, these movies often carry the tagline based on real events, because surprisingly they have some bias in reality. The original court ruling in the case handed down in 1975 did not make explicit mention of malign spirits, but it did consider the story plausible. That's interesting. This is Daniel. That um, First off, I'm sorry if the English seems a little bit broken. I assume that this article was translated from Spanish, so it's not going to read in the most flowing way. And since it's my first time, I haven't edited anything. But it's interesting how it starts out. It's almost like um, a bit of a grandizing what happened. It's like making fun of it in a strange way. So I'm sure the article is going to continue on that theme, but um, it, it's setting up the possibility that the ghost stories are real. So let, let's see where it goes. Continuing. In his 2002 book, The Night the DeFeos Died, Reinvestigating the Amityville Murders, Rick Asuna goes over all the irregularities surrounding the case, the obstacles the defense team encountered in gaining av- access to evidence that had not been submitted and the hurry on the part of the authorities to lock up a culprit even before a coherent version of events had been obtained. Osuna has for years advocated for the case to be reopened. His goal was not to see Butch DeFeo, Ronnie DeFeo, who confessed to the crime and died in custody in March 2021 and the age of 69, exonerated but that his true involvement in the killings of his family be established i am sorry that is really difficult to understand so it looks like uh, the author wants the case reopened now according to them ronnie defeo died in march of 2021 i actually didn't know that so i'm just going to look it up ronnie defeo oh he did oh my goodness i had i i i just assumed he was still alive I'm really bad at that. I don't keep up on the news like when celebrities die. I don't find out till like two or three months later. I'm still shocked about Gilbert Godfrey. That 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 killed me because I love I love his comedy. So uh, it's just it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Anyway, Ronnie DeFeo's dead. So the 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 point is that the author of the original book wants the case reopened. There have been question marks over DeFeo's guilt from the moment he was arrested given that the authorities at the time were convinced the crime had to have been carried out by more than one person. 
uh, this is Daniel. That's 100% true. They, what was surrounding it, and the article might mention this, is the fact that um, because the rest of the family didn't wake up and there was no silencer on the on the gun, there was no sign of any uh, type of poison that would have knocked the family out, it's literally impossible that the shotgun could have gone off on one person in the family and have the other ones just stay sound asleep. Like how absolutely loud it would hurt your ears. It's inside the house. It definitely would have woke them up. So the thought is that it wasn't just Ronnie that he had help and that they uh, timed it so that all the shots went off at the same time. And I don't think they had the forensics be able to tell any small amount of difference in timing. Continuing. In his conclusions, Asuna maintains that DeFeo killed his parents, Ronald and Louise, uh, with the help of a friend, but that his younger siblings were killed by his 18-year-old sister, Dawn. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, who was then shot by DeFeo after he witnessed the atrocity. Uh, quote, I think that Dawn was involved, and simply saying so makes me sad, because we're talking about a girl ready to do anything to get out of the house and escape from her parents. Uh, Osuna says via email. The author, among other arguments, uh, points to the affidavit signed in 1974 by Don's boyfriend, uh, with whom she wanted to move to Florida despite the disapproval of her parents. So she was in love with a guy wanting to move to Florida. Uh, and Osuna also holds up evidence uh, of a comic song written by Don. I didn't know this. Sometime earlier, the Night the DeFeos Died, also the title of his book, this is Asuna's book, which she fantasized about murdering her family. So the sister Don, this is Daniel, wrote a comical song, right, The Night the DeFeos Died. Okay, you know what, I gotta, I gotta see if I can find out. Uh, Don DeFeo... If there's the words for this somewhere in here, and I'm not, I'm not finding it offhand, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drag you guys out to find this. If I do find it, I'll put it in the description of this podcast. So I, I actually didn't know that. This is Daniel. I didn't know that additional information about Don DeFeo. That she actually she had a boyfriend who she wanted to escape with, and her parents wouldn't let her. And as well, she wrote a comic song, which I know it's dark, but I would love to have heard her sing it. <laughs> the night the DeFeos died. I mean, those two pieces of evidence are pretty damning. And what I've read before has an ad to that. So this art, this uh, journalist uh, did the research. Continuing. The second half of Asuna's book focuses on reconstructing the family life of the DeFeos from their arrival at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, which they purchased in 1965. Although the tabloid press placed a lot of emphasis on the high hopes sign Ronald DeFeo had hung at the entrance to the house as a symbol of the prosperity he thought. He saw it. Well, that's interesting. Uh, 112 Ocean Avenue was far from an idyllic home, according to neighbors and acquaintances that the author had interviewed. So this is Daniel. So that's an interesting point about the mindset of Ronald DeFeo, that, you know, he was the father. And uh, he, I guess, 
was batting above his average, so to speak, that he bought a house that's not something his family would normally get. And it is actually similar with the Lutz family who moved in later, which I'm sure this article will mention, that the Lutz family also, they were renting a house that was above their supposed station in life. So it's interesting that he had that because when you're not getting that success that you hope for that your surroundings are providing and maybe you're under the gun financially that it would make you a more angry person and maybe being that angry person is what led to and is not obviously an excuse for for murder but led to the behavior of ronnie and supposedly don and the the death of the family so it's an interesting side note continuing The domestic horror described to the author was centered on the violent character of the father, Ronald DeFail, who abused his wife and children, and definitely Ronnie, too. Uh, Furthermore, the family was directly linked to organized crime through Louise DeFail's father, Michael Brigante Sr. That is a a mafia name if I ever heard one. Uh, They say he's an associate of the Gambino crime family. Uh, the boss, Carlo Gambino. There's a connection there. Now, according to Butch, Ronnie, who worked alongside his father at Brigante's dealership and his girlfriend, uh, they were already more than familiar with death, having had to dispose of bodies on behalf of the mafia. Man, I know very little about this. That's interesting. I should have read that book. So Ronnie says... That along with his girlfriend, why would he bring his girlfriend to body disposal tasks? I don't get that. But it is. so along with his girlfriend, they dispose bodies for the mob. Hmm. So I mean, that would uh, mean Ronnie would not be a stranger to death. And who knows, maybe the girlfriend was involved with the killing of the family. That because it was the one other stranger person that we didn't know. Although Ronald DeFeo's erratic and reckless behavior had led the mobster's eyes to a light on him. That's interesting. Osuna rules out his involvement in the Amityville massacre. So they believe the mob wasn't involved. Uh, Since the killing of children violates... That's true. So the killing of children and women who are not involved with the family business, it does violate the code. And I think that's a code that was, you know, very strong. And one of the reasons why people could accept this is daniel talking uh they could accept the mafia back in the day because of the fact that innocents weren't being killed and i do air quotes with innocence because it was mostly targeted towards the people involved like the soldiers and the the bosses and the family they were the ones who killed and even like the more recent thing that happened in hamilton and mississauga you could see that the assassinations were very targeted, that they were careful to make sure that there was no innocence around when the bullets started flying, which is very much different than some of the gang violence that has happened over the years, where basically they'll go into the most occupied of places and just open fire. So that code was very important and, and I, I believe uh, respectable. I mean, murder is not acceptable, but the fact that you have a code that it's only the person who's targeted, who's you know probably done violence themselves, that's a little bit better. Continuing. 
In the reconstruction of events laid out in his book, the events take place on November 12th, after a violent argument in which Ronnie DeFeo attacked his wife and several of his kids, leaving his youngest child, a nine-year-old, with a bloodied face. Dawn, for her part, tried to defend herself with a knife, convinced that their father would kill them all if they did not act first. Dawn persuaded her older brother, Ronnie, to kill Ronald during the night. She also encourages the same fate for her mother, Louise, who despite also being a victim of his abuse, is seen by Dawn as beyond hope, as she was always unconditionally on her father's side. This is Daniel. This explanation, now I came in thinking this is going to be a skeptical article, but when coming down to the history, and I'm probably going to regret this once we get into the ghost stuff, this is very interesting to me because I can understand it. I mean, it all makes complete sense and it does explain some of the mysteries that surrounded the murder. So maybe Ronnie took that secret to his grave. Again, he died last year and I didn't realize it that his sister was the initiator and that that makes complete sense and the fact that they were abused like that but what about the kids i mean the kids were also abused so you know why kill them so the article continues it brings up that question what they don't agree on is their younger siblings Uh, ronnie instructs don to watch their bedrooms while he and according to the author's version of events Oh, so he had a friend named Bobby Kelsky. Uh, So the two of them do away with the parents. And then Don argues that they can't leave any witnesses. So Don obviously seems a little over the top. And that it would be a crime for the younger children to grow up with such trauma. That's dark. So she decides to kill them too. Ronnie, horrified by what has happened, takes matters with Don into his own hands and becomes the sole surviving DeFeo. So according to the author here, this is Daniel, Ronnie killed the parents with his friend, and because Don was pushing to kill the kids, or maybe Don had killed the kids, that's what I'm thinking, because the kids hadn't moved for the original shotgun blast, so Don kills the kids, and then Ronnie kills Don. So I'm wondering where Don was found. Maybe the article will explain that, but where she was found in the house would kind of add to that. If she was in bed and they real and there was evidence that showed that she never moved, then this could be false. But if she was found in a more different position, then maybe it's true. Tragedy and farce. The bulk of Asuna's book provides a wealth of documentation and data that the very least cast doubt over the rigor for which the trial was conducted and how the evidence was treated. For example, in the crime scene photos, which are reproduced in the book, bloodstains can be seen in places that do not add up to the story that DeFeo told and um, that the, the kids and that the parents were all killed in their beds, which serves to support the author's version of events. That's what I was mentioning before. The discovery of a bullet with a different caliber from the Marlin rifle that Ronnie discarded after the massacre is also highlighted. However, it is the author's chronically of anomalies during the trial that the Amityville case starts to deal with paranormal phenomenon. Here we go. A useful gauge on the priest's brutality 
melted, meted out. This is so weird. During that era is in Suffolk County is an astronomical confession rate during interrogation. 95% compared to example, 35% in the Bronx. So what they're trying to say is that in Long Island, where it happened, that the confession rate is extremely high for 95%. And then if you compare it to the Bronx in New York or in Brooklyn, it's like 35 and 20%. So they're saying that priest brutality factors into a confession. So the author then maintains that the confession of Ronnie, who is an alcoholic and a heroin addict, is mentioning here, stated that he was the sole culprit, was obtained under torture, not under duress, under torture, and the various judges involved in the trial process rejected all evidence to that effect. So basically they're saying that he was coerced into saying that he was the sole culprit and that nobody else was involved, so that factors into the lie that is currently being spread. Continuing, the prosecutor and the police admitted on several occasions that the crime would have required three people, which the author's version does work towards, and another independent investigation by a retired police officer um, named Race, uh, it's uh, ironic, uh, reached the same conclusion. However, media interest in the case and political ambitions on those on the side of the law prescribe swift justice. That makes complete sense, but not at the sense of a lie. Um, so they're saying that it was pushed on Ronnie because they needed the swift justice and that the other story might be more complicated considering that Don is now dead. So the book is not designed in any way to serve as a mouthpiece for Ronnie DeFeo, who the author describes as a liar. That's <laughs> good. That's good to know. Any direct quotes from DeFeo are often verified or discredited by other sources when there's no evidence to support it. So he's not, you know, Team DeFeo, Team Ronnie. The newest revelations to emerge are those of his wife at the time of the crime, Geraldine DeFeo. So he was married, okay, uh, with whom he had a daughter. DeFales filed suit against the author and his ex-wife for slander after the publication of the book and denied having ever been interviewed by the author, but he lost the trial. So Ronnie didn't like the book by the sounds of it, and then him and his wife, Geraldine, come together to try and get it suppressed or get a lawsuit against the author, Asuna. Uh, quote, Ronnie wanted money and royalties. Okay, maybe that was the angle, not to get it suppressed, but to get money for it. Frankly, I didn't think that he should profit for his role in the killings. Thank you very much, Rick Asuna. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your last name right. Uh, he continues that the wife, Geraldine, had no part in the extortion and refused money. As such, Ronnie also denied that she had ever been his wife. <laughs> in the end, with the exception of the abuse, Ronnie wound up turning into his father in a way that he treated those around him. So Ronnie has a wife that he denies being a wife. The wife says that she is his wife. But then Ronnie comes forward and says, I want money for the book about all these lies, even though his wife at the time, not wife, says that she doesn't want money. She just wants to help her husband out. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, you know, I can see that. Ronnie became his father. <laughs> it's true. Continuing. 
Ronnie DeFeo was not the first person or the last to view the horrific loss of six human lives as a business opportunity. Oh, here we go. His lawyer, William Weber, in desperation due to being repeatedly denied access to evidence in a scheme worthy of the series Better Call Saul, uh, took part. That's good. Took part in the organization of the infamous demonic haunting plot at the house in Amityville. So this is Daniel. I know some of the facts surrounding this situation. So some say that the Lutz family didn't really have the experiences that are featured in everything, and that this lawyer, which they say is like Saul Goodman. Which, if you don't know that series, watch it. It's great. And it's so true. Got the family together and came up with a plot to make money off of the situation and maybe gain evidence, uh, gain access to evidence, as William Weber was looking for, so that they all got together and that that's where this book came from. And the book is what led to everything else. So that's the theory. Then the other theory is that the Lutz actually did have ghostly experiences. So I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, so this was William Weber, the lawyer. He wanted more evidence to use for Ronnie's case. So that's where the plan came from. So it is said that Weber formed a partnership with the next occupants of the house, the Lutz family, who are the ones featured in the movies, who through an author, Jay Anson, wrote the best-selling novel, The Amityville Horror. Now, this is where everything spirals out in the way of ghosts. So the Lutz family was only in the house for 28 days, which I didn't know before. That's not really a lot of time. And they said that a priest was added to the cast who was later defrocked by his diocese. <laughs> so there was a there was like a, a shifty priest as well, because the priest was featured in the movies and the book. And then later on, the well-known demonologist husband and wife team of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who held a seance during which they captured a photograph of a demonic boy. If you haven't seen that photo, uh, I might use it as the main image for this podcast. So you'll see it in there and you can also look it up. And the boy looks remarkably similar to one of their photographer's own children. I, I do actually no, I don't think it was the photographer's own children. It, he looks similar to one of the investigators, if I remember that correctly. Now I could be wrong on that, but I I, I remember looking it up the the picture beside it. One of the investigators uh, that was part of the Warrens team did look a little bit like a kid, and if you see the picture, you know what I mean. And then, you know, that would tell say it's potential that it was faked. Or maybe they didn't know where the investigator was when they took the photo and they thought it was real. And then the investigator was like, yeah, sure, whatever, it's real. And then it became legend and you can't go back on it after that. I don't know. Continuing. Lorraine Warren herself made an appearance in the 2012 documentary, My Amityville Horror, which focuses on the testimony of Daniel Lutz, one of the Lutz family children during their stay. In the scene, which will not be swiftly forgotten by anyone who's seen it, Lorraine displays a fragment of what she says is the true cross on when Jesus Christ died and a box containing hairs from the head of St. Pius of Petraclesina. I'm not even close. While reciting prayers with Lutz, unlike the other works of fiction, the forest can be seen for the trees and in the testimony of Lutz, who is convinced he witnessed paranormal phenomena as a 10-year-old, 
lurks in the shadow of coercion and above all parental abuse. Okay, this is this is getting too much. I, I can always tell when there's a run-on sentence with this author, even though they did amazing research. They're they're then getting into opinion. It says it, good. It says in my opinion, but this person's a little bit over the top when it comes to parental abuse. I think. And then also putting down Lorraine Warren for her religious beliefs. You know, I, I, I totally believe that that's not a piece of wood from the true cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know about this St. Pius. I'm not too sure who that is. But if it gives Lorraine Warren comfort to think that, then there's nothing wrong with it. So I think the author is a little bit mean on that regards. But anyway, uh, quote, In my opinion, the Lutz children were disgracefully used as part of a scam and that must have affected them in a serious way. I don't believe that, Mr. Osuna. That, yes, they were used as part of a scam if it was a scam. But to affect them in a serious way, I doubt that very much. Because it really is not a massive thing. Maybe in the sense of an infamous fame. But they could just stay out of the limelight. And if this Daniel Lutz is part of a, a documentary that was done, obviously it's not him wanting to stay out of the limelight. You know, so I, I, I disagree with you on that completely. Continuing. Um, da, 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 da. So it says that the author of the book does maintain a business relationship with the father of the family, George Lutz. So in his book, the author recalls the moment he lost all faiths, faith in Lutz when he was told, quote, clearing up what happened isn't as important as making money with sequels. So he says that George Lutz said that, which I don't know why he would tell an author who's writing a tell-all book. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. And Lutz also took the author to court for his description of the haunting scam in the book. And as was the case with Ronnie DeFeo, he lost the suit. So after his extensive investigation, during which he says he was the subject of several anonymous threats, so this Asuna is being threatened, uh, which ceased after the publication. Asuna, a former fan of the Amityville mystery, admits he has not been able to watch any of the slew of movies about the supposedly haunted house. Now that tells me something. This is Daniel. That if he's so angry about it, about, I guess, the lawsuit, about the fact that supposedly they scammed it, that he can't watch the movies, that tells me it's an emotional reaction on his part and that he loses a bit of credibility in my eyes. Although, again, I believe the his version of how the murders happened. I don't really fully, because now he's getting emotional. If he can't watch the movies, which I know uh, some of those movies are unwatchable. I've tried. They're terrible. <laughs> but the original one was decent. And there was a couple of sequels after that. I didn't even mind the remake with Ryan Reynolds, even though I think that was really poor casting because he's known for being more comical. But, uh, you know, for the shirtless scene for the ladies, I'm sure they enjoyed that. I didn't. I'm sure they did. But it tells me if he has an emotional reaction that this is an emotional fact that he's providing. So he loses credibility to me. Continuing, quote, before learning the truth, I thought the earlier ones were entertaining, but now I don't like them. So he did like the early ones, never mind. And the book and the movie, The Amityville Horror, capitalized on a genuine tragedy, the murders of the DeFeo family, 
and seduce the imagination of a public who unfortunately don't care how they are entertained. So now he's putting down the public. <laughs> That's why uh, I used to like this guy, not so much at the end of the article. But he does make a bit of a point capitalize on a genuine tragedy, which I'm not a fan of, and spinning it out. But I'm trying to remember, and maybe you guys can tell me, but did they really feature the family tragedy all that much? I'm trying to remember the movies, and I don't think it was really a... they, They were more focused on the ghostly occurrences, and they didn't really go too deep into what happened. And I don't even remember if they mentioned the DeFeo name specifically so maybe they were more respectful than this guy thinks because he's so scared to watch the movies i don't know i could be wrong on that but again he's losing credibility with me on this reaction here continuing although ronnie defeo and george lutz are now dead visitors to 112 ocean avenue by people curious about the famous case continue much to the weariness of the various families who have lived there since the events of 1974 and who stated they have never experienced anything paranormal or demonic. Uh, this is Daniel. I actually am one of them. I've, uh, I've had my visit to Ocean Avenue and I've seen the house the way it is currently. The windows are much different to try and throw off the scent and they changed the number of the house too. So I understand their feeling now we didn't get out we didn't take photos i think i just stayed in the car and i looked i just wanted to kind of sit there and see it and then we went upon our way very respectful we didn't go near the property or anything i'm sure some people aren't as respectful but they got to understand i mean if they're going to live in a house that's so infamously known then they got to expect it like if i lived in a house where a famous person was born I'm going to expect that people are going to come and look because as a tourist coming to a town, you're going to want that experience. You're not going to go to a town that has a famous house like that and not at least drive by to look at it because you want to have that experience to tell people, oh, I saw the Amityville house. So anybody moving in should not should just accept that fact and not hold on hope that people are going to stop visiting. And even if they don't make another movie till the end of time, people are still going to visit it. And you got to expect that. Of course, they have to be respectful and not go on your property. But as long as they stay on public land, I don't understand the issue. And they shouldn't be so uh, so uh, nasty against it. All right, just finishing off the article here. In 2022 alone, three straight to DVD releases based upon the Amityville case are straight stated for sorry are set for release. Uh, the three of them are Amityville Uprising. Amityville Bigfoot, and my personal favorite, Amityville Karen. (laughs) I'm going to personally watch Amityville Karen. Maybe this will be uh, a future podcast episode where I review movies and I'll make Amityville Karen my very first. So I hope you enjoyed the strange news segment. I am not going to be doing one next week. I have switched these to be every two weeks because of the fact that I am introducing interviews finally. I've done my interview, the first one, with Kate DeYoung. She is a horror writer slash psychic I've known for many years and have worked with in the past, so we talk about that. That will post on Monday, and then those will alternate by week 
along with, of course, the main podcast, which will happen every Wednesday. But I hope you enjoy this strange new segment, and I'll talk to you guys soon.